When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Jim. We are now officially in a break between Season 4 and Season 5 of Euphemet, and with that, I'm going to continue posting conversations I have from over on Patreon and, and maybe some other stuff. Thank you so much for listening and checking out this bonus content. Today is really a great chat with John E.L. Tenney. You can hear the feature we did on John in 2018. That's episode 10, Lives. John is very familiar to those that have listened to Euphemet for a long time. He's a lecturer, an investigator. He's like the face of paranormal noir, a theoretical weirdo. And that's what we're talking about today in this conversation is his recent book, Theoretical Weirdo. You can find it on Amazon and with a link in these very show notes. This is a really fun conversation and it's a long one. So it's going to be great for a road trip or a flight or several trips to the gym. So please enjoy this conversation, hopefully in the cover of night. This edition is sponsored by our friends at AMC Network Shutter. I want to thank them real quick for the continued support to you from that. We really appreciate it. In front of a live Patreon audience, let's get into our conversation with John E.L. Tenney. It's going to be a great conversation. We are already hearing incredible stories, laughing our asses off over here. And it's just so exciting to have John come to this party that we've been having lately. Darcy is here with us as always. Um, my co-host, Darcy Staniforth, writer, investigator, and of course, Johnny L. Tinney. His short bio is that for over 30 years, he's been involved in paranormal research. He's wrote more than a dozen books, and over 100,000 people have attended one of his signature weird lectures. You, of course, have seen him on TV. You've listened to his podcast, Realm of the Weird, or his newer one, uh, What's Up Weirdo, which is just absolutely hilarious and great. So we know John E.L. Tenney, and we're happy to have him here from uh, Royal Oak, Michigan. John, thanks so much for joining us on this Hangout. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So the last time that we spoke... We had a great day over at your house, and uh, we went to a bakery, I believe. I and think so. You, you showed me this famed bakery, and we sat there, and you were making soup, and you shocked me with a machine. <laughs> Everybody that comes over to my house gets shocked. Tell, tell us a little bit about this thing, because I will never forget it. I just, there was this period of my life where my parents and friends would would say that i was a shocking person 
that like the things that I say can somewhat be qualified as shocking to a normal person's mind, quote unquote, normal person. And then when it got to the point where the people I was talking with more frequently and, and my friends, I wasn't as shocking to them. They just realized that's just Tenny. That's just the way I am. And so I tracked down this turn of the century uh, kind of healing quackery machine, which is just a machine that shocks you. And it's supposed to electrify your cells and your blood and stuff like that. And it, it can <laughs> really hurt really badly if like you pick... <laughs> There's a whole bunch of different instruments that you can insert into it. There's one, uh, oh. if you rub it across your head, it makes your hair grow. If you rub it across your head the other way, it makes your hair fall out. Like, it's electricity. <laughs> and I got to this point where if I couldn't shock people mentally when they came over my house, I would make sure that in some way they would be shocked. So everybody that comes in my house has to be shocked with the shocking machine. <laughs> I just, I, I was just so intimidated because the attachments were absolutely frightening. They looked like something out of an S&M, you know, section of a... Of there's an one to be, there's one that's supposed to be inserted into the anus. Yeah, oh, there's, uh, you know, one that's just supposed to be gently stroked on the arm. But yeah, the, ins the insertion tubes are very odd and strange. <laughs> I love and they it. Each, each of them contain, this is the weird thing, each of them contain a different gas, which I guess is how it's supposed to work. Like some of them have neon and some of them have argon so some of them are purple and some of them are red and some of them are orange and in my brain like these things were never meant to last 130 years so i wonder <laughs> what kind of like chemicals have leached out into my house <laughs> through this poorly constructed 125 year old shocking machine yeah i want to know about that going sorely awry when it first came out because you know that there were people that were not as delicate with those tubes and that gas mm. oh yeah there's a on the control knob it's so funny because we always laugh you laugh at science fiction movies and stuff where there's like a button that says like don't press self-destruct sure the, the knob on this machine like says don't it's like don't go past this point but it does go up past that point, but they point out that you're not supposed to go past that point. <laughs> so this it's one like, goes oh to 11, God. but... It's like on your car. It's it. like telling people that you can only drive 70 miles an hour, but your car's speedometer goes up to 110. Like, if they sure. just put speedometers on cars that said, like, 70 was the max, right? like, people wouldn't be as tempted to go, like, right. 110 miles an hour. Right. Driving 110 miles an hour isn't necessarily going to turn you into some mutant, though, because of the strange gases. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, John, um, this is one of my favorite things you have ever produced. Oh, you're part of the experiment. I, I've read it several times. I took it out with me when I was doing Euphemet uh, for, for uh, uh, you know, a few trips. Uh, just threw it on the hotel bed, picked it up, would read through just certain chapters because I, I thought it was just a great like sort of slice of John's life and a look into, you know, kind of, you know, bits and pieces of where you came from, but also just some of your experiences, which uh, are very cinematic. Like you have a very cinematic writing style. I can imagine being in some of these places that you experienced. And so what was the process of, I know you want to say something, so please. Yeah, no, it's it's weird because the book was everybody always tells me I should write a book, but I hate writing. I hate writing. I like speaking because it's fluid and it's 
ethereal. It goes away. Once I say something, it's gone. It comes out and you hear it and you take what you take. And when you write something, it concretes it and roots it. And then 30 years down the road, people want to ask you about your thought 30 years earlier that you wrote down. And I will say, I, I mean, I tell people in the book, like, I probably don't think this way about these things anymore. Like right. I, I hate, hated writing it. And then <laughs> my, th there was, there were these processes involved of like, okay, if I'm going to write something, then just write down your ideas, make a book like your lecture where every chapter is two pages long or three pages long. And it's just, here's the burst thought. And then here's out. One of the things in the paranormal occult community that has really been bothersome to me over decades is people writing 300 page books to say something that can be said in two paragraphs, just going on and on. Like it's the reason that a lot of really like not well-known, but to me, influential people in the, in the paranormal and occult communities don't ever write books because if I were to write a book about the beingness of human, like that book is, our lives seem to be uh, some type of game. We seem to be interacting with each other in a game-like scenario, and we should have fun. And that's the whole book. Like, I'm done. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. And and you have, but you have a whole community built up around people who take 300 pages to say that sure. because they want to seem as if they're, I mean, it doesn't have to get any deeper than that. Yeah, right. And so when I, was, when I was writing the book. talking about <laughs> So when I was writing the book, it was like, here's the thought, and now I'm on to the next thought. Here's my idea, and now on to my next idea. And Dave, who is the editor of my book, went crazy because I told him, like, we're not allowed to edit this book. This book has to be filled with misspellings. It has to have grammar grammatical errors. It has to have, like, it. this is the way that, in a lot of the times, I exactly as I wrote it. And so... If I misspell something, if I don't use uh, a colon properly or a quotation mark, or if I forget question marks, that's fine because people need to see that when you write, you make mistakes. Yeah. We look at books that are written and they've gone through five or six editors and four or five copies. And even though there is still some kind of truth behind the original writer's intent, you miss how the writer wrote the book. Right. Um, my friend Josh Mallerman, he was the author of the book Bird Box, which was a big hit on Netflix. And if you talk to Josh, when Josh wrote Bird Box, it was just over 300 pages and it was one sentence hmm. there there were no periods uh and he it was a stream of consciousness book that he wrote and was like no one will ever read this because it will never be published it's a mess and throughout the course of two or three years editors came in and said break this into chapters this we're going to edit this and put in periods and stuff. And you still get Josh's vision to a certain extent, but you don't see the madness of writing that book, which I think right. was really important. I mean, I, I knew Josh when he had written it that way and a book, it's a book about madness. And you, so now you have this book in front of you that is just one sentence and it's 300 pages of madness. And it was so much more effective to me reading it that way. And so I think when I wrote, 
theoretical weirdo, I kind of wanted to have that too. I wanted to show people that you can write a book that's not perfect and it's still fine. The ideas will still come across. Yeah. And they do, you know, in the same way that great design movements experiment with how things are presented, you know, the cut copy movement, for example, where it was a fucking mess, right? But that was the point. It was supposed to evoke emotion. You were supposed to feel something from it. And so I think, I think you're right about that too. I mean, and maybe that's because I grew up in an era in the eighties making cut copy fanzines, like everything was cut and paste uh, digging through old newspapers, looking for headlines to make the headline for my headline or, or redrawing over comics and cutting them out and white out and electroset and zipatone to try and get it right. And it still looked like a mess, yeah. but you got your point across. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Mission accomplished. Um, well, you know, I, I thought, I th- oh, go ahead, Darcy, please. No, I was, I was going to say, I think it also says something to the like idea that people these days don't see process anymore. Like we don't get to Uh, see how, how it's made. And so it's something like when I work with students that I'm trying to always like explain to them, like there's a process to all of this. There's a process to writing. There's a process to speaking. It doesn't just come out perfect the first time, or if it comes out and say you flub a word, okay, you flubbed a word. So next time you try not flub that word, but like this, this culture of perfectionism and like Mm -hmm. first take drives me crazy because it is just not the reality of what it actually takes to put like art and creativity out into the world. Well, and I guess that is, I mean, that's totally true. And, and, and another lesson that I kind of learned like that too, was being in bands in the eighties, you know, every older musician that I talked to when I would talk to them about blowing a guitar solo or messing up like uh, a part of something I had played during a show. Every single one of them told me like, you're the one that you're the only one that knows that you messed up that guitar solo. No one ever heard that guitar solo before you played it. And so if you hit two wrong notes, you, you were the only one. And then if you stop and say, Oh, I screwed that up. Now everyone knows you screwed it up. Because you pointed it out. (laughs) And I think in this era of perfection, you see it a lot. Like people aren't allowed to fail. Mm -hmm. Your TikTok has to look great. Your YouTube has to look great. Your podcast had to sound great. Everything has to be great because someone's going to jump in and say, this looks like garbage and think that it somehow affects you. Yeah. Right. But I mean, that's uh, the magic, right? Is that it shouldn't. Yeah, that I mean, it hits home, you know, because a lot of creatives will ask me for advice, whether it's a podcast or it's something else. And I'll always try to impart to them that, you know, be okay with failing for a while while you're figuring out what this is and just be okay with that process with no expectations. And eventually, maybe you'll get to that spot where you'll be, or you'll have the idea that you actually want to go in this other direction. Mm-hmm. But you got to give time to that process. And what's interesting is we're talking about sort of creativity and our relationship to just communication. But I think at the end of the day, this also ties back into our relationship with the unknown and how we go about in that process. One of the things that we've talked a little bit here on these Patreon hangouts lately and and something that I've been thinking about uh, a lot is this idea that, you know, within the paranormal, a lot of people think they need to know it all and be a part of it all and be a professional researcher, boots on the ground or not, right away. 
and and like you know there's this expectation they have in themselves for what that looks like but really like shouldn't there be like maybe just a place for everyone and shouldn't the boundaries be like hey well it's okay if you're not into that over there like you can just stay over here if you want that's fine yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I might be wrong, but I think that in Theoretical Weirdo, there's like a chapter that's called It's Okay to Like Stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just saying, like, you don't have to be a researcher. You don't have to know everything. It's okay to just like weird things and be a person who likes weird things. That's absolutely fine. And in my lectures, I tell people all the time, too, your weird experience is enough Like whether your weird experience is a simple synchronicity or a ghost that you saw or thought you saw when you were a child or UFO that you saw one time when you were driving, that's enough. It's not a competition. You don't have to be the most well-researched about stuff uh, that you're interested in. Your experience for you is what you have experienced. And so you are an expert on your experience. And that should be enough. You don't need to be able to throw out all of the references to all of the researchers. You need to be able to look at your experience, internalize it, and say, okay, that was my experience. I can discuss it. I like this weird stuff. I like a ton of weird stuff. I don't know everything about it. I know a lot about some of the stuff I like, but that's a normal human thing to do. But I have huge (laughs) gaps and blocks in my knowledge of things that I like, but I don't care because I just like them. (laughs) yeah how novel right (laughs) like just being able to like things i don't know how that goes because i always have those uh expectations on myself and you know i'll i'll get into liking something feeling relieved that i'll never want to do it like there was a period of time where i watched (laughs) mma and it was Mm -hmm. awesome because i could like just completely disconnect from anything i was doing and just watch mma and then I started taking up boxing and getting punched in the face. Yeah. These things, like, there is an intangible quality for so many things. And I'm not alone here to pull us in, to, to take us, like, by the, by the reins. And I, I think there is a point in time where we need to be okay with that. But also, we need to settle down with those expectations on ourselves. And just go, like, listen, just, just settle into that space. It reminds me of something you told me. And, and there's a line in this book that, that uh, describes to me... Uh, clearly that what your intents were are working. And that is you say something to the, to to the fact of the matter that you like planting seeds in people Mm -hmm. and then they go away and then you Mm -hmm. see how they sort of gestate in that person. And then you gave me a description one time where you're like, you know, I think, I think this stuff works like this. I think that, you know, you begin to engage with the phenomenon and it gives you these little hints and it almost goes like, Hey, you want to play? Right. And you go like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get into it. Like, let's play. And then there's a certain period of time where you can make the choice to play or not play, but you have to realize that you do have a choice and that Mm -hmm. you, if you don't feel okay, like back out of it. And that was one of the most powerful things that anyone has ever said to me. And getting into so many sort of hair raising wild situations while taping euphemet and all these strange locations that was one of the things that i feel protected me more than anything else john was knowing that i could say no you know i'm tapping out i've been hit in the face before i don't need to go down there (laughs) i'm just gonna go over here real quick i i appreciate that i think that it's important for people to understand that 
every time you get a tap on the shoulder from the universe asking you to engage, you, you have the right and responsibility to do what you want, which is sure, I'm gonna engage and no, I'm not gonna engage. And I also think that you need to be of awares that if you do engage, if you choose to engage, the universe and the cosmos that is trying to engage you also has the ability to then go, no. <laughs> so the universe can ask you to play and you can say yes. And then the universe can say no. <laughs> and you have to be prepared for that. If you, I mean, it's, it's the same rules for us all us one, like, your ability to say, no, I'm going to back away from this. I've, I've been in too many strange situations. I'm getting too, a little too freaked out. I'm out. And the universe might keep tapping you, but you can keep saying no. But you really need to be aware that it's a two-way street, that that choice exists on both ends. And so when people say, well, I always engage with weirdness and nothing ever happens to me, that's a move as well. A, a non-move is a move. <laughs> like the universe saying no every single right. time you want to engage with it. No, no, no. That's just as strange as it's saying yes every single time. <laughs> There's an episode of one of the uh, experiences that I recount in Realm of the Weird was when I was testing psychics in Detroit back in the early 2000s. And there was a gentleman who got every, we were just doing card flips and seeing that if he could guess the card and we were just doing red and blacks and this gentleman got them all wrong. And after he left, my mind was blown because that's as impossible as if him getting them all right. Yeah. If he was just guessing, he would be getting 50, 50. He would be right. getting sometimes red, sometimes black to get them all wrong means that he somehow knew what the answer was and then always guessed the contrary to the <laughs> proper answer which meant that he was the most psychic person I had ever met, but he had only ever been wrong in his psychic predictions. It's profound. I love the idea of going to a psychic and be like, everything I tell you, the opposite, just do, go the other way. <laughs> right. right. Well, then it makes me think too, of how many people go to psychics who don't know that they're that way and they're following the psychic's advice. And they're like, man, I do everything the psychic tells me. My life is still all fucked up. And it's because the psychic doesn't know that they've been telling the person the exact opposite of everything they should be doing. <laughs> it sounds like a, a concept for a, uh, yeah, like a comedic series right there, <laughs> or yep. at least a short of some sort. Oh man, that's funny. Um, you know, I want to I want to share with our patron friends some weird stuff that's been going on here in the hinterlands of Oregon in just a little bit. And uh you know John as you know like these Patreon hangouts are a space where since they are are so non-constructed like the Euphemet podcast uh I indulge on just sharing some weird stuff with each other. And, and keeping each other up to date if, if new weird things are occurring in our lives. So I'll share that in a second. But first, uh, I, I thought it would be kind of interesting to, to travel back in time with you. You have, you, you have a chapter in here where you describe going to old metaphysical conventions. Mm -hmm. And I think what was really illuminating for me and how you described them was it was a great sort of snapshot 
to see where you came from and like mm -hmm. where you were at one certain time and then how it kind of changed and transformed you. So can you describe 1980s going into some of these buildings and, and what these metaphysical conventions were like as opposed to maybe what you might find now? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me when I think about going to those, those old conventions, whether they were kind of witchcraft gatherings or, or crystal conventions or metaphysical conventions, because I went, I guess, because I knew that there was a world of real estate conventions and uh, tax collecting conventions. And <laughs> like, as a matter of fact, one of the very first to I'll come back to the metaphysical, but one sure. of the very first large scale events I ever went to was there was this uh, commercial on television back in the eighties for a guy whose name was Tom Vu. And he was like a real estate developer. And he, it was him on like a luxury yacht with all these women. And he would always sure. say like, if you come to a Tom Vu seminar, I'll teach you how to be a millionaire. And he said he was going to be in Detroit. And so free tickets. So I called and I got tickets for me and my friends. We went to this convention. There were just like thousands of people packed into this room and this tired guy up on the stage <laughs> kind of just mouthing the words of like Norman Vincent Peale and like the power of positive thinking. And then at the end of like two hours, like telling everybody, if you want to know the real secrets, you know, pay me $300 for the next seminar sure. and oh, something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I knew that stuff was out there. And I was, uh, well, I guess when I saw that there were metaphysical conventions, I was like, was well, this kind of the same thing? Like, are they just going to like tell me tropish stuff and then demand money of me <laughs> right, like is this what my parents do when they go to conventions for teachers and school bus drivers right. and mechanics and so i went and it was not at all like that everybody there was so happy to be around other weird people hmm. and everyone at that time Everyone talked to everyone. There was, I, I remember conversations between like a crystal healer and this guy who had seen Bigfoot and she was explaining to him like Bigfoot and Mount Shasta. And he was talking to her about uh, how certain stones are found in certain ways. And could those stones mean anything about Bigfoot and watching Bigfoot and crystal healers talk and then going and seeing, you know, a ghost lecture. And then the next person up was doing Reiki healing. And then the next person up was talking about their alien abduction. Mm. And it was like, wow, like this community is amazing. Like, and again, no one was trying to outdo anyone else. Like there was this unspoken understanding that the uniqueness of everybody's weirdness was beautiful. And so mm. there was no need to fight over who was the most unique. <laughs> and slowly but surely though, Going to those conventions, I don't know if it was due to popular culture or the people who were just in charge of putting those conventions together, but all of a sudden you would start to see like, oh, now all the crystal people are in this room and all of the Bigfoot people are in this room and all of the ghost people are in this room and the UFO people are out in the hallway. And then all of a sudden there was just a ghost convention mm. and just 
uh, UFO convention. And that seemed really strange to me. And you start to kind of see it bleed back into the way it was now. Now you've sort of seen all of a sudden there's all of the people together again. And, And I'm really excited for that. But for me at the time, just to be able to walk into a room and say something to the effect of, I mean, I'm trying to think back, you know, 35 years now, 40 years now, (laughs) but to walk into a room and say something like, um, oh, you know, I just watched 1956 movie, The Mole People with Hugh Beaumont. And is when they talk in that movie, the mole people are talking to an adult person. I'm a teenager. And I say to the adult person, when they talk in the, in the movie, the mole people uh, about the submerged Sumerian culture that became the Lemurians, are that the, are those the Lemurians you're talking about now? And they'd be like, Oh, well at the beginning of that movie, if you notice, they discussed the hollow earth theory and John Cleve Sims and his theory. And so yes, whoever did write that movie was absolutely talking about the Lemurians. And here I am as a kid who just had weird ideas and watched science fiction movies and stuff, having an adult conversation and getting not ridicule back from the adult, but getting more information. Like it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Those moments are so beneficial for those that are lucky enough to have them. You know, um, you also have situations where some of us are lucky enough to have that weird mentor too, right? Well, and yeah. And at one of the conventions, you know, there was, I think I write about it maybe in the book or maybe on my blog, but at one of the conventions I was there with like my green hair and my spike leather jacket. And I'm kind of reaching that age of punk rockness where, uh, you know, I'm scoffing at everything. And, uh, and this woman comes over, this big motherly woman comes over to me and sits down and starts talking to me. And she starts saying mom things like, do you have those spikes on you? Cause you don't want people to touch you and just like being jokey and stuff. And then she starts <laughs> talking about, then she starts talking about magic and how I'm surrounding myself with all of these shiny objects because of the way that I shine and she can see beyond like, and all this weird stuff. And that was, she, her name's Marion Kukulo. That was Detroit's Green Witch, Gundela. And all of a sudden, like, I loved this woman. And all of a sudden, I have a witch as a mentor. Like, and, you know, it's, and and then you learn about witchcraft from a witch. And that's just part of the process, I guess. Like, it's just strange how it does work out that way. Or my other researcher, uh, mentor Craig, who was a conspiracy researcher that I was just sitting in Denny's one night with my friends being a jerk and here's this guy with a stack full of papers in front of him and he's got pictures of the Kennedy assassination and I'm 16 years old and I'm like, what is all that about? Talk to him. And the next thing I know I'm writing letters for him to the government for freedom of information act requests and the government assassinations of RFK and JFK and MLK and Malcolm X and, uh, working with him and our friend Paul Lee at doing the research for the Malcolm X movie. And like, I think it's a real testament when I do lectures and I tell people, if you're safe and you're interested in something and the opportunity is provided, like, and the universe taps you and you're ready, like to say yes, to, to find weirdness in all of its places, it's waiting for you. Mm. Uh, I, I think that that's, 
I think that's why I encourage people to talk about their weirdness and to be okay with their weirdness because every, am I allowed to swear on this? Oh yeah. I've been censoring myself. I usually swear like a trucker, but I, I just feel like we always hear this trope that we will lose friends and families and we will lose our jobs. And if we talk about this stuff and the stigma that's attached to it, and now I'm at a certain age where I have done this my whole life and I understand the stigma that's attached to it because I was a guy who promoted myself in the eighties and nineties, just talking about UFOs and witchcraft and, and strangeness. And I'm fine. Like, like it's okay. And every single person that I've met from the biggest skeptic, the biggest scientist, the most assholish person that I've, I've met, all of them are fucking strange. They're all weird. Mm-hmm. Like every single one of them, maybe not weird about ghosts, but I can't, I had a, a friend who poo pooed everything paranormal whatsoever and called me a weirdo and called me strange. And we were still friends. And one night there were a bunch of us and we were going kind of from house to house, like in a, in party mode. This is 20 years ago. <laughs> and like, I get to his house and he's got an entire room full of star Wars figures, like all of this. St- and he didn't talk about it to anyone <laughs> because everyone would think he was weird. But the reality was that was his weird thing. He didn't want to talk about it. He thought there was a stigma attached to it, but there's not, if we talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. And, and, and the more we talk about it, the more people are going to feel safe sharing their stories. You know, I mean, how yes. often have we had that experience maybe where you're having a conversation with someone that is, you know, very, maybe they appear very square or it's a professional meeting of some sort, having nothing to do with the supernatural paranormal, maybe in a different space completely. And it's brought up that you work within this field of trying to understand if ghosts and aliens are the same thing. And then more often than not, you maybe share a little story or something and they go, listen, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't say this a lot to people, but like, I, I got a story I got to tell you. And they uh, are ready to share something with you because they have found someone that maybe, Hey, maybe I'm safe here doing this. Yeah. And, and those, those moments are really special. Yeah. I, a friend of mine, uh, she doesn't anymore, but she used to work at the CERN laboratory in Europe. She was like part of the large hydron collider at CERN and doesn't believe in ghosts, doesn't believe in UFOs, uh, nothing like that. And we hadn't talked in years. Uh, I just knew that she was there because every now and then her name would pop up in papers when I was reading scientific papers. And I thought that that was super cool that one of my friends was like a big deal scientist. And <laughs> sure. uh, I got an email out of nowhere one day that was just like, you know, we were shooting, like it's this very clinical, uh, her point of view written email, even her voice from be- before she was a scientist. And it was like, uh, here, I'm sending you these scans of these particles that we drove through the Large Hadron Collider, and they made these weird uh, patterns, and they reminded me of the crop circles and alien language you used to send me. I thought you'd find it interesting. And (laughs) she didn't say that they were crop circles and alien language, but the thing is, is me talking about weirdness to her 10 years earlier sat in her brain enough to when she was sitting at the Large Hadron Collider, like this giant super collider in Europe, and she saw these patterns swirling out, a part of her went, oh, that's fucking strange. 
<laughs> Somebody should know about that. Right. Like maybe that's something. Like if she yeah. didn't think it could might be possibly some weird thing, she would have just never sent it. Yeah, maybe maybe she'll let you know when they resurrect Osiris to uh, right? come and take back <laughs> the planet. Maybe she'll have some. <laughs> Um, so, so I want to, uh, uh, first of all, I want to tell patrons if you, if any of you want to jump into the conversation, have questions or stories, please just raise your hand, uh, use that feature. I'll, I'll bring you right on to talk to John Darcy and myself and, and the rest of the patrons. Um, yeah, feel, feel safe and any sort of questions you may have, you know, this is a, this is a warm room and we're all friends here. And I don't um, have any secrets, so yeah so uh let's see if there's any john answered <laughs> let's see, let's see i don't any I, chats my life i it i cannot live my life with secrets at all like i can't do it uh yeah matthew here i'm gonna bring you on real quick i was just gonna ask if you wanted to jump on because your comment was this list is long everybody okay matthew hello hey for being here john so i had two little notes if i had a chance to get in on the conversation i thought topically i'd be interested in hearing you speak to uh so one idea that i think of a lot is the concept of destiny versus free will if it can be boiled down to those notions um so or those concepts or if they're opposing concepts or maybe they're the same i don't really know but i think a lot about is is the life i'm living something that's pre-scripted and preordained? Or is it totally chaotic and just forming randomly moment to moment, day to day? And my best guess is that it's something that um, is kind of like what we think of as destiny, but it's more malleable and fluid. So maybe maybe a, a question for you would be, do you have any reading recommendations? And I, I, I've never read anything of your work before. In fact, I just heard about you on the last um, Patreon discussion, I think, that we had with Carl Pfeiffer. Um, that was where I first heard of your work. And so I just watched some YouTube videos and stuff. But um, so one question was destiny versus free will, if you had any like thoughts or, rec <laughs> or read rec reading recommendations. And then the other thought that I had, if you wanted to get into instead, was psychedelic versus supernatural experiences. I've been learning a lot more about psychedelics and um, medicinal psychedelics in particular, and that frontier and um, uh, coping with depression, treatment-resistant depression, and PTSD and um, traumatic brain injury, and working with some information on that frontier. So um, kind of maybe your thoughts on where the psychedelic experience through potentially ayahuasca, DMT, um, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, and supernatural crossover. And if you have any like writings that you've done or recommended writings potentially. Sorry, I always have like too many thoughts. No, I'm the same way. Trust me, I'm the same way. Uh, my two subjects. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Yeah. Um, they're both great questions, and I, yeah. I guess I get to riff for a while now, which riff. is awesome. <laughs> so can you, is there any way you can keep Matthew up on my screen? Yeah, I think if he uh, unmutes here, you should be able to scroll over to him. Oh, got it, got it up there. Um, yes. So I guess when it comes to free will and destiny starting there, uh, reading requirements, I don't know what they would be. I always... 
my I personally am always kind of driven by things that I don't know if I should be reading them. And I allow, I mean, if you want to talk about free will and destiny, like uh, those books seem to find me. So whether it's uh, like reading the philosophy of like Meister Eckert or stuff like that, like, or Zhurdajev, like all of these things tie in, I, you know, my personally, so a lot of my, inborn thoughts come from being a human being living in this world and looking at the natural world and trying to draw the weirdness out of it. And I guess when I think about, I was never raised with any kind of a religious belief system, which I think is actually a benefit for me. I think that a lot of people who are raised with religion, and I'll get to the point, but I'm just going off of my brain and how I need to talk. Um, (laughs) I think that when a lot of people are raised with like, especially Judeo-Christian religion, no matter how far removed they become from it, because it's embedded in them at such a young age, whenever they hear God, whether they want to or not, there's a flash or a spark in them that personifies God as as an old man on a cloud with a big beard. Like it's just somewhere always stuck in your brain and there's no way it's ever going to come out, even if it's not what you believe anymore, but because it was put in there at a time when your imagination wasn't as vivid as it was going to become, it's an old man. So like, I don't have that stock image because I didn't get that put in me as little. So when I hear God, instead of like a big old man, I see like an energy river, right? Like there's a flash in my head of a river of energy every time I hear God. Now, when I hear destiny and free will, the way that that applies, since there's no like man playing the pieces, an old man doing the pieces of destiny and free will, I associate it with the energy river being a fountain. And I feel like free will and destiny is like a, a water fountain in the sense that the water fountain has a shape and that shape is consistent but it is completely different from moment to moment. Everything that's in it is comprised and changing constantly. It is completely fluid. And yet the overall design of a water fountain, when you look at it, is solid. So it's only as you walk toward it and start to notice that each individual drop is going into a different place. They're arcing along similar arcs, but they're all uniquely different. And so I think that Destiny and free will is much like that. I think that there is this overarching shape, but as you break down into the smaller, minute bits of it, that is where you notice that it is uniquely different in every single moment, even though the overall picture is a design, if that makes any sense for free will and design. Uh, What I think is interesting as a book for free will and design or free will and destiny So I tell people all the time to read like Phantasms of the Living, which was a book that was written in the 1800s by the Psychical Research Society, Um, Edmund Gurney and, uh, you know, William James was a part of it. Uh, Myers and Gurney, I think, wrote Phantasm of the Living, the two volume set. It's freely available on archive.org. There are two volumes. Each volume is about 600 pages. And the thing that's interesting about it is very dry. It's a recounting of, I think, between 1,000 and 1,500 sightings of apparitions, which is why it's called Phantasms of the Living. And after they collected those, 
sightings and experiences, it was Edmund Gurney who realized that the most common form of seeing an apparition was uh, a pre-death apparition. You would see someone and then that person would die. And after they started writing these books, Gurney started asking this question, if you're seeing the ghost of a person who hasn't died yet, then what are you seeing? Does the ghost of the person know that they're going to die soon, which is why they reveal themselves to you? So does your spirit have a free will or does your spirit know the destiny that you are on and reveals itself before the body of the biological goes away? So I think that although that book is about apparitional sightings and and case studies, you find some really deep, interesting questions about the nature of not how we biologically may or may not think we have free will, but is there something within us that directs us, that knows more than we do? And does that have free will or is that somehow tied into its own destiny? So I think that's a a really good kind of not, people don't read it for that reason, but I think that there's a lot in there to just to get out of it. And then psychedelics, oh, psychedelics real quick. Yeah. Sorry, because I went long, and I know I'm going to go long on a lot of these questions, but there's a lot in my brain. Feel Sorry. free. Feel free, John. <clears throat> uh, so when I first got into, so I had a near-death experience when I was 18, and I, I had a heart attack and died, and I was out for th- about three and a half minutes, which is real close to brain death, because about four minutes is where you get oxygen deprivation, and the brain starts to become not so recoverable. Um, the plasticity of the mind starts to break down around then. So after I made my recovery, and there's a certain amount of PTSD that goes with that, with that death experience, and went to a lot of therapists, and uh, after I was making my recovery and getting back into the field of research that I am in, I wanted to know how my what my brain could do and how my brain could do it. So I started doing things like I joined every uh, magician's guild, the International Brotherhood of Magicians, Society for American Magicians. How can illusions fool my brain? And then I started signing up at Wayne State University in Detroit for psychological experiments. I started doing sleep deprivation tests for the school. I started doing isolation chambers and float tanks for extended periods of time. Uh, And then I started on the path of hallucinogens, like what can my brain do if I'm doing psychedelics? Earlier in, I believe it was 90, I had a brief encounter with Terrence McKenna. So like there was already that kind of put into my mind too of like the mushroom is there and and what can the mushroom tell you? And I think that everything that nature provides to us is provided for a reason. And so I think that psychedelics can play a very important role in mental health. Uh, one of the last actual real jobs I had was I taught kids with learning disabilities and they were all, every single one of them were on some kind of man-made controlled substance to either inhibit them or knock down their creativity. It was terrible to watch. And one of the reasons that I left that field, uh, it was really sad to watch my students slowly become zombified by what was supposed to be helping them and watching Mm. their creativity dissolve. Um, and in some cases, you know, even more negative effects, watching rage build within them because they, their emotions were being suppressed. Uh, and that was pretty terrifying to, to watch. Right. Uh, but I do think that it's there and, it, and there are uses for it. But again, I think that each unique individual 
has their own path to using them. So like for me, I realized very quickly by 96 or 97, I had done all of the hallucinogens. I had gone to Mexico and done an ayahuasca um, experience. And I realized by, you know, 98, like this isn't the path that my brain needs. My brain needs to be the way that it was all the time before so that I can say that this is the experience generated by my brain. Um, but I do think that it helps some people get outside of themselves, which in this day and age, we have so many cages that keep our brain locked up, whether it's Twitter or we are all right now, literally looking at each other in little boxes. I mean, that <laughs> makes a psychological effect on your brain. We're all in boxes right now. And when you look at the internet, you're looking at a box and little boxes within little boxes. And that tells your brain like to compartmentalize. And I don't know how good that is. So, I mean, I think that the fact that I'm not on any drugs personally makes me able to realize I'm looking at boxes within boxes and that makes my brain think it's being compartmentalized. But I, I do think that there's a, a very necessary component to the things that the earth gives us uh, and the things that can be produced to help the imbalances that we might have or to break us out of the boxes that we have been mentally constrained within. Yeah. Boxes within is that, boxes. Is that at all anything, Matthew, that you were wondering about? <laughs> yeah, that's great, John. Thanks for taking the time to, to address both those things. Do you think that psychedelic experiences are supernatural experiences or are they organic experiences that uh, precede supernatural experiences? I think that supernatural experiences, I think the experiences that we each have are the experiences that we have. And to, to, I think that putting real and not real or supernatural, I think if it's happening, then it happens within this universe, which makes it a natural experience. So I'm not a very big proponent of supernatural or paranormal. I think that they are happening. And so I think that accessing, if someone says that they accessed and went to a different realm or went somewhere else, then they did. And who am I to say that they didn't? I cannot be in their brain at the time that they're doing it. And, you know, it's always interesting to me as a person who had a death experience when I watch researchers uh, who specialize in NDEs and death experiences say like, well, we can make rats have the same experiences as an NDE as a person who died. And I think to myself, like, how do you know? Are you talking to the rat? And they're like, no, but the brain is the same. And I'm like, but the brain is not my brain. Like you can't tell me. And, and how did a rat tell you it saw like a tunnel of white light? Because that wasn't my experience. And so if that's the experience the rat is having, which I don't know how you, if we're not talking to rats, like I don't know how you would know. Uh, so there are all of these little misfires in science where science says, you know, this is the way it is. And science is never supposed to say that. Science is supposed to be this never-ending quest for better information. It's not supposed to be a definitive of saying this is what it is, period. It's always supposed to be this is our best guess for right now. And I think science, the way that it's become, uh, you know, scientists are the priest caste 
that they hated so much that they broke science away from spirituality. Science broke away from spirituality because scientists were like, everyone should be able to read the books, not just the priests should be able to read the books. Everyone should know what's in the Bible. We should teach everyone to read. That way we all have the knowledge. And now we have science, which you have less than 1,500 theoretical physicists in the entire world, and they're the ones who say, well, it says in the book, trust us. And so they've become the people who can read the book and tell us what the science is, and we're supposed to believe them. So you either educate us and make us all scientists, or or understand that you're limiting us by thinking you know what's best for us. Yeah. And Biden... Let's get Q on this. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's uh it's amazing to think about that separation of 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 science and spirit that happened so long ago. Thank you so much, Francis Bacon. And here we are now with this <laughs> new priest class of of individuals that can't even recognize that even within different realms of science, there's there, you know you know they're they're being shown that there's disagreements within what reality is over here and what reality is over here, depending on what the scientific inquiry is. There is a very disingenuous part of new science, which is the mechanized, materialized world of science as it is today is very disingenuous and because they don't believe what they're telling us. They tell us that there is no afterlife. This is a one-time shot. Everything is for naught. The sun will explode and burn up the earth and then it's all gone and then it's done. And they don't believe that. And the proof that they don't believe it is that they have children and that they try to do things. There's no reason to try and do things. There's no reason to make things better. There's no reason to have children. You don't, in their, in their minds, I mean, I've had this discussion with scientists. Uh, when was the last time you told your child you didn't love them? Because as a scientist, you don't believe in love. You believe in a chemical reaction in your brain that makes you, it's an evolved process that makes you feel certain chemical releases telling your brain that you need to protect and, and monitor this child. And love is poetry. And what you're saying is there's no such thing as love. There are only these chemical reactions. And so stop telling your child you love you. There, you tell them there's no Santa Claus because you don't want them to believe in a lie. You tell them that there's no Santa Claus. So also tell them, I don't really love you, but I uh, evolved process makes me care for you. Like... <laughs> <laughs> they are disingenuous. And if they believed it was all for naught, if they believed that there was nothing else, all of the science, all of the books they're making, everything that they've ever done, that gets destroyed when the earth gets destroyed five billion years from now. So it's all for naught. And if they really believed it, honestly, they would march us into infinity right now. They would tell everybody, just fucking kill yourselves. Science says it's all for nothing. March us into the ocean. But they don't say that because they don't really fucking believe it. Yeah, how interesting. I mean, listen, like constructs, though, again, those boxes within boxes, they help us sleep at night a little bit because we go <laughs> like, oh, this all sort of makes sense. Like my job matters because this and this. Yeah. And then, and you know, lets you, uh, when you hear that scratching, you know, at the foot of your bed, you can just kind of like roll over and go, that doesn't exist. Right. You can say, I don't want to engage. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, not, not right now. Darcy, uh, please come into this conversation. 
let us know what you thought about what John just riffed on there, because I, I, you have a great perspective on this kind of uh, situation. I mean, I, I agree because it's it's like the 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 nihilism if they truly believed it, it would it would true it's like oh none of this all matters let's all be done and again like i think about how ego ties into this i think about how you know oh i have to carry on my legacy i have to carry on my generation my family right all of these things and i think thinking about tenny what you were saying in response to kind of matthew and and your own experiences with uh your your nde which you've described as a null void experience. I was watching, I watched a documentary this morning called uh, Hope Frozen about the youngest cryogenic, uh, the youngest uh, patient uh, client, I guess, of Alcor in uh, Arizona. And this family of medical engineers loses their daughter to terrible brain cancer, but is so kind of, stricken with grief, but also hope that science will provide the answer. And I'm always fascinated by cryogenics because I'm like, well, but if you believe the soul leaves, then if we bring people back, then aren't we just reanimating zombie? It's a whole, it's a tangent. I won't go <laughs> on right you. now, but I'm, yeah. Ghost freeze, I'm bro. wondering, yeah, like, I'm wondering for you since you've come back, because I've heard you talk a lot about like, all a big fun game like let's play let's play let's not have a competition but let's play so for you has your view of what happens after we shed this mortal coil changed um i don't think so um i don't know if i don't know i mean one of the things that i talk about when i talk about my death experience is that it's it's hard. It's difficult for me to talk about because the easiest way for me to ever talk about it is that I was inside of infinity. And so I existed as that non-form solely my own personal consciousness inside of a void. And that void was my personal consciousness. So like there was just nothing but me forever. And it's weird for me to talk about what comes after this because I'm already in a place that's after infinity. So I, I was in a place forever and now I'm in a place which is after forever. So like when people say, when I die, I'm going into the next realm. It's like, okay, but like I I'm already after infinity, which isn't supposed to have an end. But now for me, infinity has an end because this started after infinity, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not even sure if I have not shed, like, I could be a ghost. You could be a ghost. All of us, like, philosophically, there's no good evidence that any of us are talking to each other. There's no good evidence that any of this exists. Like, it's it's all perspective, subjective. It's all in our minds. Like, we don't really know what we're each experiencing. We can pretend that this is a shared common reality, but we really don't have a lot of good examples that it's true. Uh, and so... I don't have a problem as well for each person having their own individual after this. Yeah. Because I don't know what their personal this is. And we'll be right back after this.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Is that a chill in the air? It reminds us that Halloween is right around the corner. But why wait until October to celebrate? Shudder is once again supersizing the spooky season with 61 days of Halloween starting in September. Shudder's biggest, best lineup of new movies, new series, and classic favorites ever. This month kicks off with two Shudder originals hot off the film festival circuit. Rental Gone Wrong thriller Superhost on September 2nd, and ghostly chiller Martyr's Lane on September 9th. Then things really heat up with a new season of Creepshow, premiering September 23rd. And thanks to AMC Network Shudder, you can watch those films and more for free right after you finish this episode. To try Shudder for free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code Euphemed. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com with promo code Euphemed. Did you watch those films I recommended in July? The McPherson Tapes? Arch Enemy? Well, here's another one. The 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You can watch that now on your Apple TV, just like me, your phone, or about any other device and enjoy the largest, fastest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling entertainment. It's the best streaming service for horror and the best for Halloween scares. New stuff is added weekly, and it's just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. But you can try Shudder for 30 days for free and help support Euphemet while you're at it. Just go to Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and use promo code Euphemet. And I, I think if anything that the pandemic has shown us is that everyone has their own reality. Like, yeah, absolutely. Everyone has their own reality from, you know, the one end of the extreme all the way to the other. And I think we're in a space right now where people are just very vocal about it and it's become very divisive as opposed to because it's been weaponized as opposed to people like we kind of started this conversation coming into the room and going like, this is, this is my weird thing. This is my weird thing. Cool. Nice to meet you. <laughs> well, that's, and I say that a lot at my lectures, like the thing that is, I think easy for people to hear and, and, and easy for people to comprehend, but even for me is difficult to under fully understand is that the thing that we share in common is that we are each different. Our commonality is our uniqueness. And if people were ever wondering like, oh, these people are so different from me, that is what everyone is thinking. And so that is what you have in common with that person. And that's, the, that's what you need to a jumping off point for people to get along is you need a commonality. And we've all been given that at birth. 
we've been given the commonality that we're each a unique individual. And I wish that people could see that that's the starting point that we have with each other. Mm. That's where we can start to learn and grow. But it's been very much so weaponized that uh, our uniqueness should drive us into camps of closer uniqueness. And then from those camps, we'll have tribes. And then those tribes will war over who is the most unique, who is the most when the reality is, is we're all totally fucking different. <laughs> and that's what we have in common with each other. And that's the beauty of us. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to, you know, you know, finding ourselves in a place where we can share those stories so we can find then that commonality of living in a strange world together. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, again, too, uh, storytelling, some people... I mean, storytelling is a not just talking and telling stories. You have, I mean, I think art is storytelling, right? And no matter what you want to call the art, it's storytelling, whether someone is painting a painting or someone is dancing or someone is cooking or someone is, all of their art is their storytelling. And for some people, their storytelling for my mother, her storytelling was being a mother. For my father, his storytelling was being a mechanic. They didn't really tell stories, but they told them in their art, which was the thing that they did most easily and the thing that they wanted to do and the thing that they were most wonderful when doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how beautiful when people uh, sort of recognize that that's their vessel, or at least they feel comfortable and that's their vessel on how they communicate, you know, yeah. whether that's a brilliant meal, you know, sort of crafted for you. I, I don't. You know, I've I've seen the conversations people have had before where they'll, where they'll say, like, how sad it is for someone to never find the thing that they are the genius at. That, mm. you know, you, you hear this kind of trope that everyone is a Mozart, or, but it's just in their own field. <laughs> they have to find their field of specialty. And the reality is there's a lot of people who are doing their wonderfulness right now and don't even know they're doing it. Yeah. Yep. You know, their wonderful art is listening, is walking around the neighborhood, mm -hmm. looking at the trees. Their wonderfulness is feeding the squirrels in their backyard. Like that's, and it gives them joy and they might not even be good at it, but they're happy about it. And that's their story as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that uh, lends to what we're talking about with we have to compartmentalize, right? Like this idea that we have to, because what's the first, and I, I hate this question. I hate it so much when we're at a party. First thing people ask is, what do you do? Right? Yeah, right. Not who are you? What do you like? Like, tell me, tell me, tell me three things you're into. It's what do you do? And that defines so much in our culture of where we place ourselves. And I think, the three of us for sure. And other people in this room, I'm sure have known that that question also is really about what can you do for me as opposed to mm -hmm. actually uh, trying to like genuinely engage with a, another human to say like, Hey, you seem like you might be interesting or I want to have a conversation with you. And, and I think that because that has such, um, carries such weight in our culture, people don't, get to be proud of things that they did. Like, and I, I love Tenny that you were describing 
it as art because that is not how people mm -hmm. think about it. They don't think about the what a lot of people consider maybe the mundane and the everyday as art. But it is like there's this this saying that's like it is not our job to heal the world, but to heal the pieces that reach out and touch us. So maybe it's those that person that's so good at listening that helped the person that just needed to talk for a while, just needed to say, like, I'm not alone, I'm seen and I'm heard, and what I what I do in this world matters. So that listening person that, you know. I, my dad was a electrician for 55 years and his, that was what he did. And he was good at it. It wasn't his, mm -hmm. like, I don't know that I would ever say it was like his calling. Cause it was like, he was an immigrant that it was like, you got three choices of the job you get to do. And then he's like that one. So, you know, but he <laughs> embraced it and it built his life and it, it made a life for our family. Right. And so I, I think that we get so caught up in our roles, right. Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about roles and, and like, this is who I am as opposed to like, no, this is really who I am as a person, as a human with emotions and different facets. And I think tying back to what we talk about, about like, you can just like stuff. And Jim and I, I think we're talking a little bit before we came on, about getting so frustrated that, you know, people can't just like, Oh, I like, that was fun. That was, I like that. So the synchronicity of this going in this direction is always wonderful, but like, can you just say like, I like a thing and it not have to be gate kept or people being jerks about it or have to be a, like, I don't need you to, I like what I like. It's okay. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the funny <laughs> stories I think about is a few years ago, I was with, um, Greg and Dana, and we were at the Magic Castle in California, and uh, the guy that I had done the show Ghost Stalkers with, Chad Lindbergh, was with us, and we were all they were they were all sitting outside because I was smoking, and so we were all sitting around the smoking section, and someone from the Magic Castle came out and walked over and saw us there, and sat down and started chit chatting, and he did exactly what you said, Darcy. Like he looked at me and he goes, "So what do you do for a living?" And I, I just said, I said, I think and talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs. And Chad and Greg and Dana burst out laughing. And Chad goes, did you really just fucking say that to a stranger? And I was like, yeah, it's what I do. Like, what did you, ex what did you expect me to say? I, I think and talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs and stuff. Like, that's what I do. And he was like, I just... I could never, and Chad's mind was just blown and Greg and Dana were laughing. And it was in that moment where I was like, why, why don't we just say what we love yeah. as what we do? Because yeah. that's the first thing that popped into my head was, this is what I love. That's what I do. Tell him what you do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's interesting that people, like you said, people also, what are you, what are you going to do for me? Especially it was in Hollywood. So I'm sure that he was looking for one of us to say television or writer or something like that. <laughs> I cannot exactly. tell you how many experiences I've had like that at the magic castle. So when you're like, here right. comes this guy. <laughs> oh, let, let's see where this is going. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and I think also the, the reaction too, especially maybe from Chad, who is, you know, is in the industry is you didn't give this super polished answer. Right. right. Like you didn't elevator pitch yourself to be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a nationally known public speaker <laughs> right. of the occult and paranormal. No, no I talk about ghosts and UFOs for a living. 
<laughs> and then I think I, I've posted this on Twitter a few times and, and it actually, I think Jim, I think it's in the very beginning of theoretical weirdo, but like one of the most powerful quotes that a mentor ever told me was one of my mentors, Jack Bolin, who was a minister that I met later in life before he died. And Jack used to tell me all the time, like, and he started it the same way, which is the way I started it, which is, do you want to know the secret of the universe? Come close and I'll whisper it in your ear. Here's the secret, the secret knowledge. Surprise yourself. Surprise yourself with your strength. Surprise yourself with your creativity, with your adaptability. Surprise yourself with how you're going to react to a situation. Surprise yourself. That's the secret. Like, and I, I think it's very important that people do that. Well, how are you going to react in this moment? Do you know how you're going to react in this moment? Surprise yourself instead in how you're going to react in that moment. Do you want to cry, but you don't? Surprise yourself and cry. Do you want to laugh and you don't? Surprise yourself and laugh. Do something that surprises you. Yeah. Wow. Um, surprise. I'm going to bring on a, a listener here. He has a question. Jay, I'm going to ask to unmute you here. Hey, John. Um, hey, Jay. I love how you talk about having a sense of play with the universe. And um, I just wonder if you've had a time where you felt the universe was playing with you the most like as if you were the universe's cast <laughs> i have honestly uh looking through my notes and being a researcher i have this thing that i call my five-year wave and it seems like the universe really fucks with me for five years and then it's like, okay, I got to move on. And then it goes somewhere else. And then it comes back five years later and it does it again. And so I, I seem to be on this kind of cyclical wave pattern, but that could just be me finding a pattern. But I really do think the most the universe ever like threw at me was, I really do look at my death experience as that. Like that was when the universe was like, okay, you have engaged in all of this strange stuff for a few years now, and you seem to still not get it. Hmm. So I am going to fuck you up. And then I died. And one of the things I talk about with my death experience, and I've written about a little, it's hard to write about my death experience, but when I, my favorite color is brown. It, it has been since I died. And it was because in the infinity of the void of my consciousness when I was died, when I when was dead and wherever I was, I became a thought. And the thought was this continued infinity of nothing or everything. And as soon as I thought of everything is when I opened my eyes in the hospital and was alive again. And the first thing I noticed across from my bed, there was a nurse chart and it was framed in oak. And I was looking at the brown color of the oak. And I thought to myself in that waking moment, not really realizing I had been dead, not realizing anything that had been going on, not really fully comprehending it. But I remember thinking to myself that every day, 
mundane color of brown. I almost never saw that again. Hmm. Isn't it beautiful to see this mundane, everyday color of brown that I, you've always taken for granted that things are brown? And like, it really was transformative to me because I realized there will come a time for all of us when we don't see with these eyes. And so having heartbreak, seeing the mundanity of life as beautiful. Uh, my mother recently passed away. How immensely overwhelmingly emotional I have become hmm. in certain moments and realizing the beauty of being able to feel the sadness of her passing and going from full down breaking down tears into laughter as to how silly it is that i cry like that one moment however many years ago it was 30 some odd years ago now like was transformative to me and that was the universe kicking my ass and using me as a cat toy <laughs> and one time quickly and one time too i did a flotation tank for like 20 hours and literally became my cat like i think i I think he and I swapped uh, our, our psychic, like I was in the tank and I was thinking about him. I don't know how long I had been in, but I was like, oh, I did I feed my cat? And then I could see really low in my house, like from under the couch. And then I thought to myself, John didn't feed me. And then I thought, oh shit, am I my cat? And then I like was back in the flotation tank. So I think that my cat and I switched brains for a second. <laughs> <laughs> but I could have been a cat toy then too. Uh, like quite literally, maybe. Um, th thank you so much, Jay, for for your question. That was that was really great, my oh. friend. Uh, I want to tell you guys about the weird shit that's going on over here. Um, tell us. It's pretty. It's very mundane. But as I mentioned in a in in kind of like one of those patron blog posts, you know, I'm kind of uh, changing my mind about how profound the small events can be, as in. These small events can so often become just the beginning of a greater story. And even if not, these small events can remind us of something much greater. And so I'm experiencing that a little bit myself. And uh, I, I think there's some stereotypical reasons why it may be happening. If 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 we can assign any sort of meeting to things, which we probably can anyway. But but listen, I have this I had a couple strange experiences that I've been dying to tell you guys all month. So indulge me. So the first one in our older car, we have a dongle and this little dongle is what connects the one eighth connection to the iPhone. And it's a little white Apple dongle. Many of you probably have it as well. Uh, last year it disappeared from the car. I leave this car unlocked all the time. I thought like, Hey, some kid came in, they were looking, maybe they just took the dongle cause they, you know, whatever it's an Apple product. Like they took it, it's gone. Uh, I blame my wife for it as a joke uh, to, to, to rile her up because, of course, she wouldn't steal the dongle. She has no need for it. And it's also like her car as well. So it became a joke. We would I would every once in a while just accuse her of stealing the dongle out of nowhere. So we're sitting outside the clinic where she's about to go get her first vaccine, her first COVID vaccine. And I'm there with her. I'm going to wait in the car. And where we live on the Oregon coast, there's no good radio. 
right? There's, you can listen to NPR or classic rock and that's about it. And you just got to go with it. And, you know, I didn't want to listen to NPR at that time. I wanted to listen to my phone. Uh, so I pull up my phone and I go, Hey, geez, wouldn't be, would it be great if you didn't steal that dongle and I could listen to it. And I pull the one eighth cord up and the dongle is connected. (laughs) And the look on my wife's face was priceless because she had that moment. She shared that moment with me of going like, where the fuck did that thing come from? That has been gone for months. Like that's been gone since last year. Where did that come from? And so I, you know, she went off to the thing and I was stumped and she got stabbed and I plugged it in and I listened to things and that was it. (laughs) But one of the things that was really interesting about that is, you know, if you've, if, if you guys have kept up on this season of Euphemet, that very same week, maybe the day after, uh, I released the episode with Libby and Libby shares an experience of being in this home on the island, increasing amounts of paranormal activities are happening to her and her husband. And they have this experience where they just, you know, they have their laptops out. Uh, they were, you know, working on it, watching whatever. And one night the laptops are just gone. They're just gone. And they think that someone stole them. They even call the sheriff's department. And they come out and go like, well, we don't know what to do, crazy people. Uh, and, and they just give up. They order new laptops because these things are just gone. They're in a box later, unpacking it, trying to find whatever. And at the bottom of this box, which was taped up and sealed, were their two laptops. They live alone. No one's out there. These things have just appeared. And so there is this idea, I guess, of A ports and D ports, right? Or like a terminology that some people use. But I frankly like to say that these are just these are just sort of winks from the universe that it can take your shit whenever it wants. <laughs> and so I, I do know, John, that um, you have had like some experiences maybe with a place like this, because what is really wild is when these experiences uh, are places, are settings and not just objects. And that's profound to me. I also want to ask patrons, have you experienced something like this? at all before or even recently like please come on and share it with us i, I want to hear this because uh this is a situation that i don't want to feel alone in because it's uh <laughs> it's pretty weird so a couple things if i may um first and foremost before i get to because uh, i had a whole diner disappear that was my <laughs> deport kind of uh, but before i get to that there used to be a house in Detroit, in uh, Indian Village in Detroit. And this is 20 years ago. A husband and a wife called me because they, in their dining room, there's a turn of the century arts and crafts uh, house. And the, there was a table in the dining room and the dining room had been built like they had built the table inside the dining room. There was no way the table could leave. There were no doors big enough. And it was this solid quarter sewn oak table that was in there. And when they bought the house, there was a pencil underneath the table. And so they took the pencil, went and put it in a cup and then came back and there was a pencil under the table. And so for like three years, Every time the room was empty and no one was in the room, a table, uh, a pencil would fall from under this table somewhere. Mm. So they were like, what's going on? They, you know, this is kind of 
proto-internet, early 2000s, maybe late 90s. And so they called me and they're like, is this a ghost? And I had never experienced a port like this. Like it was very much, it would blow my mind. So you would go in there, uh, there'd be a pencil under the table. They were always different. Sometimes they were unsharpened. Sometimes they were sharpened. Sometimes they were old. Sometimes they were brand new, uh, different makes and models. Sometimes a Ticonderoga. Sometimes it was just a generic, but you would take the pencil, look at the table. Nothing would happen. As soon as you turned around, you'd hear another pencil hit the ground. Oh. And if people were standing in the room, like is, if anyone was looking at the table, it wouldn't do it. You could put a camera on the table. It wouldn't do it. As soon as you turn the camera off, you could remotely, even if you were trying to remotely watch, it wouldn't do it. It knew it was being watched. Mm. And they had mason jars of all these pencils in their houses because they'd keep taking them, but they'd keep popping. And then eventually they just left the pencil under there because it was just, you, if you left it there, no more would, would come. And I tried for years to let them have someone come in. I mean, we moved the table around the room as far as it could go. We had flipped it upside down. Uh, if it was upside down, it wouldn't obviously drop a pencil. Uh, but if it was right side up and no one was looking at it, it would just create pencils from nowhere. And I went by that house. They never let anybody in their house. They were always like really weirded out by it. And I went by that house maybe five years ago and that house has been demolished and I don't know what happened to those people or that oh, pencil, but it was wow. like, we jokingly, me and the owners of the house jokingly always said like, this is where every lost pencil in the world goes. <laughs> like every time someone loses a pencil, like it's, it drops underneath your table. This is yeah. every little kid in every elementary school that loses a pencil is ended up underneath your table. So that was super strange as an airport like thing just coming out of nowhere. But, you know, personally, the, the, the short version of my story was I went to a conference in Decatur, Illinois, a few years ago, this 10 years ago now, 12 years ago now. Uh, I got into a car accident. My car was wrecked. So after the convention was over, I had to stay there while they were fixing my car. The entire hotel cleared out because there was no more convention. It was called the Dead of Winter uh, Paranormal Convention. So there's no one in Decatur, Illinois. I'm one person staying in a 250-room hotel. There are no other people in this hotel. There's snow everywhere. It was very much like The Shining. The pool had been drained. It was me, the desk clerk, and like one maid. And I was going to have to be there for like three or four days. And I was mm -hmm. losing my mind. Uh, so I asked on Monday, so my car got hit on Saturday night. They towed it away Saturday night, Sunday. Yeah. Sunday I stayed in my hotel room. Monday I asked the desk clerk, is there a place where I can get something to eat? And he said, yeah, you know, you go out the back of the hotel, you go this way, you go that way. There's a golf course. You go this way, you go that way. There's a road, you go this way, that way. And then there's a diner. So I, I, and I asked him what time it was open till he said, it's open pretty late. So I left, uh, walked out the back of the hotel. Uh, it was full snowstorm. Uh, I start walking. He didn't said it wasn't too far away. I start walking. I get to the golf course. I go through the golf course. I turn through the golf course. I go through the trees. There's the road and there's the diner. So I go to the diner. I sit down. I eat, uh, pay my bill, get up, leave, walk back through the snowstorm, get to the hotel, stay in the hotel the next day, go back to the diner the day after that. Same thing, huge snowstorm, uh, eat, come back to the hotel. The next day, my car is fixed. 
they drop my car off at the hotel. I'm like, I should eat at that diner one more time. I've already eaten there twice. I'll have one more before I drive home. I drive around for like an hour. I can't find the diner. I go mm. back to the hotel. I ask the desk clerk. I'm like, I've only ever walked there. I've never driven there. So I can't find it. He's like, oh, you go here, here, here. So I go back and I find the diner he's been talking about, which is in a completely different direction than the di where I've been going. Mm. I go back to the hotel and I'm like, no, no, no. I've been going through the golf course. I've been going through the trees. I get to that little river and he's like, oh no. He's like, there's nothing over there. That's a state park. There's you're in the wrong direction if you go that way. And I'm like, no, there's, I've eaten there twice. And he's like, no, that's a state park. So I go and I try and follow my path on the road and he's right. There's a state park. I've eaten twice at a diner that doesn't exist. And then I had to go home. Oh my! And there were people in that diner. I gave real American money at that diner. I ate real pancakes at that diner. And that diner does not exist. It has never existed. I've, you know, for years been in contact with people who live in Decatur. There's never been a diner over there. Nothing. How do you rationalize with something like that? <laughs> uh, it it is it makes me insane like I and then I you know as a researcher I think to myself like well I paid with money they gave me change for a while I had that change if I would have kept it and not like I stopped at a gas station before I went when I had my car before I was going to drive home I was like oh I should buy food like snacks for the ride home so like the money that was given to me at the diner, like I spent at that gas station. But now I think to myself, like if I had that money, I never really looked at it. Like, was it right? Were things printed incorrectly? Were the dates yeah. pertinent? Could I test that money to see if it came from a different fucking dimension or an alternate reality? Is there a diner in that place in an alternate reality where they saw a fucking ghost guy come in twice? Like, am I a ghost to them? And like, do they remember me? Like, what the fuck is going on? It just yeah. blows my mind <laughs> to this day that I ate food in a place that doesn't exist. <laughs> Well, you know, what you're bringing up is a topic on that Libby episode that was a feature a, a couple episodes back where was that similar idea of, you know, she had an experience where uh, she believes that she frightened an entity that she came upon. And it started to make her consider, well, was I was I the big, bad, like sort of scary thing coming into its dimension? You know, was I popping into its dimension? Was I that UFO? Was I that ghost? Was I that cryptid? I mean, I don't think that's a scenario that individuals often consider within the paranormal. I tell the story at my lectures. I had a client who her grandmother had died. She went to her grandmother's house to do like the final, make sure all the windows and doors are locked after everything's sold and the house was up for sale. And she walked into her grandmother's house she turned to go into the foyer through this arched doorway. And when she came around the corner, she saw a woman and two girls and she screamed and they popped away. And she immediately like called her mom and she was like, grandma's house is haunted. I just saw a woman and two girls. And her mom's like, grandma's house isn't haunted. There's no ghost there. You're just stressing out because grandma died. Like there's no ghost there. And a couple of days went by and her aunt 
called her and said, I don't think grandma's house is haunted, but did your mom ever tell you about when we were a little girl and we were with grandma in the foyer and a woman came through the archway and screamed at us and then vanished? Oh my God. And my, my, the person who contacted me was like, oh fuck, I was the ghost to my mother and my aunt and my grandma in the oh. past and they were the ghost to me in the future, in the present. Oh, so yeah, man. I mean, that's the fuck of it, right? Well, I mean, what is, what does this try to tell us about the nature of reality and its sort of flexibility or whatever? Our yeah, are we are we all just we're stuck in infinity, right? <laughs> it's all just fluid. I mean, it's all just all over the place. And again, there's no good grip on any of it. Yeah. Like if I just vanished right now, that would be like really cool. But mm. at the same time. A lot of it views on awesome. YouTube. It would it would not be cool to me. No, my <laughs> career, however, this show would just really yeah. Take you guys off. just shoot up, right? You would, yeah. We'd have so many interviews to do, Jim. So oh, yeah. tell us about when Tenny just vanished. Right. We'd be on the Today Show. Hold it, <laughs> right? You could you could monetize this episode just mm -hmm. over the top. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we're talking. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to bring on another patron. Uh, Heather is going to join us. Hey, Heather. Hi, I'm muted. Hey, how are you? Good. Hey. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> yeah, so mine is not anywhere as cool as like a disappearing diner. Um, but I do have things that like disappear all the time. Like I went through a series where like every single pair of my jeans would disappear from my drawer. Like just, they were gone. Or, like a favorite CD would just, you know, they, things just happen. <laughs> and I have to sometimes be very mindful about important things and placing them in a way that feels like they're anchored in reality. Um, mm, sometimes I think, I think they just fall through a pocket and <laughs> I think they yeah. fall through a pocket to another dimension and some other me is enjoying that Kindle that I've never been able to find. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the story I, I mentioned to Jim and this is not anywhere near, but it was just like, so I listened to a lot of like the past episodes of Night Drift and you've met when I'm in my car cause I live in a coastal California town that has like NPR and lane stations. So I listened to like euphemet and night drift all the time and so i got out and i i live in a rural area and there are no street lights mm. and so i'd run an errand and i'm coming home and i'm listening to the episode with stephen williams when he's talking about you know working with spirits helping them very compassionate and mindful and he's he's telling this story and as i'm coming down the street i'm like focused on listening because i've driven this drive a million times but as i approach my house there is like a, a slight incline and coming down, I think, is like an animal. And I was trying to figure out, like, what what kind of animal is that? And I can see it as this dark shape. And it has these two, like, reddish kind of reflecting eyes. And it's about the size of a big cat, raccoon, small mm. dog. But it's moving in this really weird way. And it's approaching me. So I'm listening about, like, ghosts. I'm totally involved in the episode. And then I'm watching this really strange creature drift its way towards me and it's coming closer and it's coming closer and it's coming closer and as it gets closer to me I'm like what is this thing I can't figure it out it's moving so weird and it's right near um a red barn in our neighborhood that my grandmother never got to see but she always loved red barns and it makes me think of her and right as we're about this spot Stephen is talking about a woman whose grandmother was trying to connect and and communicate and as I get up to this, I see that it's not an animal at all. It is a helium balloon that is just drifting down the hill 
right at eye level with my car, and it gets in front of me. And so, like, of course, everybody, you see a mylar balloon, like, drifting, you think hellier because, you know, we've watched that a million sure. times. And I'm like, sure. it's drift, and it's this weird <laughs> right there. And it, it, it just kind of stops its drift as I pass, and I'm going like this. And it says, I love you with roses, and my grandmother had roses, like, right by this barn. Oh, man. Right as we're talking the story about a message about a grandmother communicating. And I was like, I'm like, is this just, you know, is this just like, it went from like monsters to ghosts to hell, your night. I mean, there's a whole like convergence of all of these things that have been in my head. And it was like the sweetest, like, I love you. And I'm like, okay. So I I pull in my driveway and I can't stop thinking about it. And I went back. I'm like, I have to get this balloon. I have to find it. And it was gone. I have searched. It's just a small little country road. I can't find the balloon anywhere. Nowhere. I went back for it. It was gone. And I was like, so weird. Mm. But it was so sweet. And I was like, oh, I, I felt like, you know, it meant something. It was like, you know, I mean, I told my husband, it's like, so you saw a balloon. Okay, <laughs> great. But for me, it felt significant. It felt different. It felt like a connection of so many different important threads at one moment. And it was just like, you know, and I think that's great. And I think that sometimes we have those things in our lives that we don't really like pay that much attention to and they're significant in the moment and then they just go away if you don't write them down if you don't remember them then you're like nothing weird ever happens to me I don't why am I not getting why is the universe not playing with me and I think that happens a lot and you know just because I don't have a platform or a book or a podcast doesn't mean that I'm not receiving that same connection and synchronicity that other people that might be more well-known might be having so no it's that's a great story and it's beautiful like i've i try and keep track because being immersed in a lot of like larger picture talking to contactees all the time or people who have their like i try and keep track of what the universe actually does for all of us which is gives us a lot of small messages all the time to keep us on track because i don't want to lose the beauty of those moments. I told people, you know, of all the crazy experiences, whether it's a diner disappearing, like hearing your story, it reminds me of the story that actually means the most to me of the universe playing. I have, well, there's two, but the, the one that I'll tell is um, I had been in a very overwhelmingly loving relationship with a woman and it was great. And then she was going to move away. And she told me, I don't want you to come to the airport. I don't want to have this be a bad breakup. And we were both just so in love with each other. And, and I said, I wouldn't go to the airport. And then the day that she was going to go, I was like, I got to go. And so I drove to the airport and I'm just raced there. And this is pre nine 11. So like I ran into the airport, like a crazy person. And I was like, I need to find this woman. I love her. I need to tell her I love her one last time. And they told me where she was. And it was like a scene in a John Hughes film. Like I'm running through an airport, screaming this woman's name, knowing that I've probably missed her plane. And then they announce over the airport loudspeakers that she hadn't boarded yet. And they were looking, they were calling for her by name. And I was like, she's, still in the airport Mm. and I race across the airport 
And I see her and she is handing her tickets to the guy. He's about to push her on the ramp because the plane is going to run late. And I run across tabletops. I jump down behind her. I turn her around. I tell her I love her. I kiss her. She goes away. I leave. I go out in the parking lot. I sit in my car. I'm crying. I'm weeping. And I say to the universe, I say, you have to give me a sign that this is okay. Give me a sign that her leaving and me staying means it's okay. Like, give me a sign. And I put my car in reverse, crying, fully weeping. And I back up into a literal sign in the parking lot. And the sign says, international departures, stay left. And I realize it says international departures. She stayed, or I stayed, and she left. Stay left. And here's a literal fucking sign, and I'm going to run you into it to tell you it's okay. You stayed. She left. Stay left. Don't worry about it. And and people could just say, like, again, that that's just all randomness. But it what I screamed out loud at the universe, what the universe literally made me hit a sign. I was asking, give me a sign. Like it gave me a sign and it was perfect. And Mm. how many people would have missed that and just been mad that they plowed their car into a sign. (laughs) (laughs) I ended up writing a whole book of poetry called international departures. Stay left because like, that's what it inspired. And it's just beautiful moments like that. And even today, like I do, I keep, I try and keep track of all of them. I was, I was earlier today, this morning when I I was eating molasses cookies, I had just gotten done mowing my lawn and I came inside and I said, I'm going to read a comic book. And so I went upstairs and I dug through my comic books and I was like, well, I haven't read any like Conan the Barbarian in a long time. So I pulled out a Conan the Barbarian comic and I, went downstairs and I threw it on the countertop. I was like, I'm going to wash dishes and listen to a podcast first. So I turned on the water for the dishes and I turned on this podcast. The first thing out of the podcaster's mouth was, does anyone read Conan the Barbarian? And I was like, okay, I'm not supposed to fucking wash dishes right now. I'm supposed to read this Conan the Barbarian. I turned the podcast off, didn't do the dishes and read my fucking comic book. Like how much more does it need to be? Yeah, right. Well, we see these situations pop up in in folks' life, and they can be uh, an incredible entryway to a lifelong journey. Yes. And other times, they can just stop. They can just go fucking cold turkey on you, whether you're ready or not. And those individuals that chase that synchronicity right, like, it can become a real problem where they need to talk to other people about, like, hey, is something wrong with me? Did the universe just disown me? Like, what is going on with that? How, how have you dealt with situations in the past where that, you know, you know, running into the sign that gives you some sort of wink doesn't happen? Or that five-year arc, that dip occurs. Before you knew that was maybe a dip and maybe a pattern, how did it feel like being kind of alone in that way? I, I think, though... I think it ties back to what I said earlier about like non-information is information too, right? So I was in Virginia a year and a half ago or two years ago. I did a a lecture in Virginia and this gentleman came up to me after my lecture. He kind of, when I was outside smoking and he wanted to talk to me privately and he said, you know, his, his mother had passed away and he was waiting for a sign from her. 
Um, and he wasn't getting anything. He was like, I'm not seeing any butterflies. I'm not like, I'm not getting any messages from her. I don't feel like she's here anymore. And he was, you know, breaking down and he was saying like, she, he's like, she took care of me my whole life. I lived with her my whole life and she's always done everything for me and she's not doing this. And Honestly, like in that moment, I thought to myself and I told him outright just because it was my thought. I said, listen, this is just me thinking out loud, but maybe she doesn't, maybe she wants you to do something for yourself now. Hmm. Yeah. Like maybe her not being here for you is her being here for you. Maybe she's, she doesn't want you to keep relying on her. Yeah. You know? And then he broke down. He was like, she always wanted me to do more with my life. And I was like, well, maybe she's trying to kick you in the ass. <laughs> like, maybe it doesn't come the way you want it all the time. And sometimes it not coming the way that you want it to is the way it's supposed to be coming to you. Yeah. I, I you know, as we've been talking about this, that's what I keep thinking about is I think, I think that there are signs all the time. I think people just miss it because of their expectations of what it is supposed to look like, right? Like he's like, mm, yeah. where are the butterflies? Where are this? Where are this? Where meanwhile, it. I I love your thought because that was my thought too. Like she needs she needs to rest. <laughs> like let your mom rest. But like, I think that people are so. They ask for a sign, but what they're really asking for is a really specific sign. Like it's only a sign if it fits this criteria versus the universe showing up and being like, actually, look yeah. at these. Look what I have for you. <laughs> it's a weird mylar balloon that you thought was a cat humanoid by a bar. Like, you know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like th that's the awesome thing. But again, when we have these, I think we have to be really careful about how we ask right? Because you can be like, show up. It's like, well, how, how do you want it to show up? And then also like, you can't sit there and go like, I'll, t I'll take a sign and I'll know it's the sign, but only if it's this really specific sign. And then you're missing out on the other things, I think. Well, and you get into a situation, you get into a very monkey's paw situation, right? Like most of the occult magically minded people that I talk to will tell you openly and honestly right now, people who have done this their whole lives, who I hold in high regard, will tell you right now, like, you can, do you, do you have a wish that you want to come true? Because write it down and put it in a drawer, forget about it, and it'll come true, but it's not going to fucking come true the way you want it to. Mm, yeah. Like, it'll come true the way it's supposed to come through, but you might not be happy with the fucking results. So don't randomly wish like that. You know, it, right. the universe is, is playing. And again, too, when you say like people have these kind of preconceived ideas of what they think a sign should be, I think that's very much, you know, we as human beings have gotten, we're very driven in, in kind of dualistic nature of reality that this is something, this is not, this is something, this is not. We've turned the, the universe into a yes and no. And the universe is just varying shades of what it is. And then you apply your yes or no onto it. And so again, like a no can be a yes and a yes can be a no. The universe doesn't have that dualistic concept, right and wrong, left and right, hot and cold, black and white. All of those things contain a myriad of warmth, grays, 
and kind of wrongnesses and rightnesses. Like there are varying levels of rightness and wrongness. You've probably heard me talk about that sometimes on our podcasts and lectures. There's a book by Isaac Asimov, who was a huge atheist and a mechanized materialist, but still has good ideas. He has a book called The, the, um, the Rightness of Wrong. And in that book, he talks about when he was a teacher and he asked students, uh, elementary school students, how to spell sugar. Uh, one kid spe spelled it S-H-U-G-A-R. One kid spelled it S-U-G-A-R. One kid wrote sucrose, S-U-R-C-R-O-S-E. And then Asimov, as a teacher, had to decide which of them was right, which of them was writer, which of them was wrong, and which of them was wronger, because one kid had spelled it phonetically, one kid spelled it correctly, and then one kid gave the chemical name for it, which is writer, than what he actually asked for. So, <laughs> like, there are varying degrees, and when we break it down to yes and no, on and off, we, we miss the beauty of the weirdness of everything. Yeah, and like weirdness. I have to just like the other thing that this makes me think about, too, because we do we miss it. But I also feel like in certain ways, the universe is pushing us into our trueness. Right. Our own like you. I have I have your quote written on a on a jackalope postcard in front of me. <laughs> no one can tell us our own can tell us our truth. Right. And right. I think that as we move to who we're really supposed to be like things happen in very different ways when we're really living like in our truth, whatever our truth is. Right. Yeah. And I think that sometimes when we're asking for these signs, we're sometimes also asking for signs that don't actually align with who we're supposed to be and the things we're supposed to move into. So it's like the universe doesn't deliver on those. Cause it's like, yeah, I'm not going to give you that. Cause that's not, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Like you need to be going in this direction. And, but again, it's that ego getting in the way of, but I have to have this house. I have to have this career. I have to have this elevator pitch of who I am. It's like, or you're supposed to be moving in this direction connecting with these people in different ways or genuine ways. Like we have a hand yeah. in it too, I think. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yep, boxes and boxes. Once boxes again, and boxes. we love it. Uh, I'm going to bring in uh, a, a guest here. Paranormal investigator Amanda Paulson is going to join us with a question to John. Amanda, how's it going? What spooky location are you in right now? I'm at my home. I'm in my home. Okay. <laughs> it's spooky. No, no spooky location. I just got back from Portland today, though, which is pretty spooky. But um, wouldn't you find it funny that I've been stewing on this question this entire talk, and then you guys steer in this direction with the conversation right when I decided now's my time to uh, ask my question. So how <laughs> funny is that? Um, but yeah, I thought I would come from a place of more like ordinariness. Like I have a very ordinary job, a very ordinary life. And I've kind of been on this almost personal hero's journey to believe my own bullshit in a way. Um, I have like a couple handfuls of experiment or of, uh, experiences that I've had over my life. I've been investigating the paranormal for 12 years now, but um, more seriously for about two years. And really, it just feels like a lot has stopped for me. Like I'm becoming more skeptical. I'm experiencing a lot less. Um, and, you know, it, it almost feels like I'm jumping off of a cliff, hoping to reach some kind of depth and just being washed up on the shore safely with no with nothing. And uh, and so I guess I'll just 
could you draw on some, you know, more nuggets of wisdom on how how to kind of stay in the strange and how to kind of keep moving forward when ordinary life keeps pulling you back and and you I don't know if you experience moments of um, skepticism yourself uh, at this point, but do you have any any uh, nuggets of wisdom for me on this? I mean, I, it's great because I don't think we talk often enough. I catch a lot of flack in the paranormal community because I tell people like I don't believe in anything. Like I, people say, how long have I believed in ghosts? And I don't believe in ghosts. I don't know what a ghost is. Or how, how long have I believed in UFOs? I don't know how, I don't believe in UFOs. I don't know what a UFO is. And I tell people all the time, like, I am the paranormal community's worst and best, like, person because I'm completely skeptical of everything. And I completely think that people's experiences are absolutely valid for them at the same time. So I think the first thing is, break, for me, it was breaking out of needing to believe in anything. The hardest line for me to walk is to be able to look at all this stuff and say, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Like, I have no clue. And then in my, my normal day-to-day -day life is a normal, average day-to-day -day life, and aside from the fact that I talk about weird shit for a living. But, like, my normal life has become ingrained in, in weirdness in that and I talk, I talk about this in, in some of the magical communities and, like, the witchcraft community and stuff – when I wake up in the morning, uh, the first thing I do, I make a pot of coffee every morning when I wake up and I pour a cup of coffee. And then I have in my upstairs, I have a shelf of all of my grandparents and my mom and, and people who have passed on and they get the first cup of coffee. And then I go back downstairs and I make, so I, I do this little, they get the first one, just an acknowledgement of people who have passed by. And when I make my bed every day, I make my bed and making my bed is this magic ritual where as I'm making it, I, I think about all the people who don't have beds and how lucky I am to have a bed and how fortunate I am to be able to sleep in comfort and, and not sleep in fear. And I really do think that in our normal everyday lives, there are these very small moments that can become magical and you can infuse them with high strangeness and weirdness by just shifting your perspective on how fucking strange it just is like that. You can see colors that you can see me, that you can hear me, that I can see you. It's so fucked up to me. And I say this in my lectures all the time. Everyone here is looking at me thinking that they're looking at their computer and looking at me, but that's not even what's happening. There's like light bouncing into your eye and triggering your optic nerve. And then your brain is making a picture in your head and telling you it's outside of yourself. So you're seeing me in your head. Your eyes aren't doing anything. I'm not outside of you right now. I'm in your mind. You're in mine. That's where we're all seeing this. The process of sight is so fucking weird that <laughs> Just seeing things, just hearing things, hearing is the same way. It's so amazing to just live a normal life. And like I said, I think the universe giving us that commonality of uniqueness, I think the universe has also given us the gift of putting us in a weird fucking universe where nobody knows what's going on. Our best loved, beloved scholars, the most highly well-read men and women in their fields have no fucking clue what's going to happen to us if we're alone in the universe, why we're here, how we're aware of why we're here. It's an amazing process to be skeptical and not believe and challenge and and 
I just think that over the years I have hit ditches where I was like, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Uh, nothing weird's ever happened to me. And I find that that's my failing to continue to recognize that beauty of mundaneness that I said earlier after I died, that, that brown and grays are these beautiful tones and colors, and there's no reason why I should be able to see them. And, and I think it's just an amazing way for me personally, I don't know if it's for everybody, but to just to look around and be like, this is all so fucking weird and no one understands it. It's pretty amazing that any of it's happening. Yeah. Oh man. I don't know if that makes any sense. (laughs) No, that's great. They answered my question, gave me more questions. So that's, that's perfect. That's exactly where we need to leave it. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, just throwing out thought seeds. I like it. Thank you. They were, they, they nudge right in there for sure. And all of everybody, if I've said anything that makes you think about something weird, the whole reason I throw out thought seeds is so that you can bring them back to me and then together we can like, I, I, my main goal has always been to construct ideas larger than I could construct by myself. That's why I love talking and lecturing and listening to people because we can't do this alone. We're not supposed to be alone. There's other people here with us. We're supposed to be doing what we're doing right now. Yeah. And in a way it makes these experiences also much more real, you know, less abstract, more real. Um, I'm bringing in a uh, one last listener question here. One, one you, really quick, before you bring in one last thing that I think is really interesting. I was talking to oh, yeah. a friend of mine who's a biologist, and we, I was talking about because you just said this about it makes the experience greater to be able to share it. There is no good biological answer to a, a scream response to hitting your thumb with a hammer and then mm. lashing out and screaming. Um, the evolved process of screaming, wailing out and crying. Um, the only reason that it evolved is so others around us would know that something is going on. Oh, that's amazing. Right. So that's the reason that it happens. Otherwise, if we were meant to be alone, we would never call out. We would never, we'd hit our thumb and then just move on. We'd be like, it hurts. And then we'd keep going. The pain reaction, the the laughter reaction is because we are meant to be surrounded by people. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. It's it's amazing synchronistically how you just set up the 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 listener who's going to be asking you questions because he knows a thing about this is so cheesy but i'm going to set up this way he knows a thing or two about screams and about laughter uh (laughs) daniel uh noah who is a feature on um the third season of euphemet is joining us here um a great film producer and and a good friend daniel how you doing tonight i'm I'm glad you get an opportunity to meet john here Hey, Daniel. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm a fan. Thanks. <laughs> um, I have to ask a quick question. That, um, uh, what was uh, the reference to Mylar Balloons, uh, Darcy, that you made earlier? What, was there some context that I missed? Oh, Heather had told us a story where she was driving home from work one night thinking she was seeing a creature, and it turned out to be a Mylar balloon that oh, became, a, for her, a sign from her grandmother. Ah, got it. Yeah. Because uh, I made note of a mylar balloon in the tree outside of this window uh, just uh, about an hour and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of, course, of course you did. Of course. 
Yes. Well, Jim thought it might it might be uh, uh, fruitful for me to share some sort of strange things that have been happening in in our home recently um, to get your take on them. Um, nothing nothing too spectacular, but uh, um, some sort of a trickster. Um, kind of uh, vibe has been going on. Uh, I was putting a, a assembling an exercise bike and I placed a washer down in front of me and then looked away. And when I looked back, it was gone. And I did what a adult man does. I swore and <laughs> threw things and looked everywhere, took, took the whole room apart and I could not figure out what happened to it. And I finally just assembled the bike without it. And, uh, and later I was, uh, crossing down the hallway and I heard a clang and I turned around and it was on the floor, like it had dropped from a height. And, uh, my girlfriend, not, uh, long before that had had the same thing happen in the same spot with a penny. She heard a penny drop and she turned around. Um, and in that same hallway, uh, a number of months ago, we had a, a, a teeny little, um, and this would imply a sense of humor, by the way, uh, a teeny <laughs> tiny little uh, golem. I mean, it's like literally like smaller than my thumb that we keep perched on a little um, ledge and it just disappeared. The golem came to life and, um, and we found it later uh, in a dish buried under a stack of postcards. Um, and our cat has been staring down this hallway yesterday for about an hour totally uninterrupted it goes on there's more but uh maybe i'll stop there <laughs> i love a port and i think um so heather did this and you did this and i think we all need to start uh maybe us collectively as a group we can start when we and i and i've done it too so the at least the three of us have done it that i've noticed it i think we need to stop saying like it's not weird. Like we all in, in our ways qualified our experience by saying it's not that strange, but like we, 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 it's almost a throwaway line that we each say before we tell our stories. And I think we need to get, all of us need to get out of the habit of doing that and just tell the story. Like I had this thing happen to me once. That's fine. When we say strange thing, I think that need, that doesn't even need to be said. Like we can just say these things are happening mm. to us. Um, my friend Dave, uh, Daniel, he used to live in an apartment where pennies would get thrown all the time. Like we'd just be watching television and you'd hear them tink tink off the walls. And he would keep them in bowls all around his house. He'd go and pick them up and put them in bowls. He had bowls full of pennies all over his house. So they just apported it out of nowhere. Uh, the one thing I'll ask you like to keep track of if you have pennies apart in your house anymore is all of Dave's pennies were warm to the touch when he picked them up. Oh, interesting. Like they were warmer than the ambient temperature of the room when he picked them up. So mm. maybe if you get a ports and you find them relatively quickly, like your washer, like I wonder if your washer was a little bit warmer than room temperature. Not something remember. you would notice now, but yeah. yeah. I don't remember. Um, interesting. Yeah, it's super strange. I love it. I think <laughs> I do. I absolutely mm. love, I will tell you with, I love, so I had a cat, uh, my cat was a big gateway for me into a lot of the ways that I think about uh, paranormal, paranormal phenomena. I think that animals are a good guide into the world because they're not into like, yes and no, right and wrong, black and white 
they just are. They exist in this beautiful realm of strangeness. Um, but I will tell you with cats, uh, so cats have quadratic vision. Uh, and so a lot of people will say that their cat is looking at a ghost or their cat sees something strange in the house. A lot of the times, so a cat sees, uh, if we could see through their eyes, which we've actually unfortunately done in scientific experiments, we've actually looked through the lenses of their eyes. Um, they see, uh, in, with a grid pattern overlaid what they're looking at. So mm. that's how they actually can hunt is they watch things move from quadrant six to quadrant eight. They know it's going to quadrant 12 and they can grab it while it gets there. So they actually have, they actually have a grid in front of them every time they look at stuff. And they have found that cats will relax themselves by finding straight lines and lining up the grid with straight lines. So they'll look at the things like the where a ceiling meets the corner of a room where there's multiple lines intersecting and they'll just stare at it to relax their blood pressure or in hallways where there's multiple lines and door frames. They'll, they'll look at the floor and the angles and they'll calm themselves down. And to us, it seems like they really are looking at something. And in wow. some cases they might be. Um, but the other thing is too, uh, cats are actually a little bit better than dogs. Dogs can hear 2.3 miles away <clears throat> and cats are a little better. Cats can hear about 2.7, 2.8 miles away. So my cat in my house, Charlie, when I first moved in, he would freak out um, like the same time every day and I could never figure out why. And so I started keeping track of it. And I realized that after his freak out, about 20 minutes later, this UPS truck would drive down my street and he was hearing the UPS truck starting up at the UPS station. It had this really heavy diesel motor. And I realized that he was hearing it from two miles away. <laughs> and so he was reacting to that. So I sometimes too with cats, I often think like jokingly, but also honestly, I think that like if your neighbors open up a can of cat food or like a bag of chips or something, like the cat can hear that even though we can't and might be like, oh, somebody opened food. And so they can have yeah. these reactions. Their, yeah. their universe is so much stranger than ours. Right. Although I would make the point that, um, uh, and Jim and I have talked about this before, um, who gets to decide what we categorize as part of the natural and the quote unquote supernatural world. So Absolutely. if your cat can hear a diesel engine two and a half miles away, maybe you can also hear a goblin three miles Absolutely. away. And, you know, just because we can't <laughs> hear that up close, it's still part of its natural world. Absolutely. And I think that that actually, so that's a great point. And it also ties into how our brain understands uh or seems to understand this seemingly shared reality. One of the things in the paranormal supernatural world you always hear people talk about is like uh, the three three o'clock in the morning hour yeah. when shit gets really weird, right? Like all of a sudden like ghost stuff starts happening. Uh, a lot of people don't talk about this, but most Bigfoot sightings happen between like 2.30 and four o'clock in the morning. Most UFO sightings, 2.30, four o'clock in the morning. Ghost sightings, 2.30, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, at 2.30 in the morning is when your brain, whether you're awake or asleep, because of the circadian rhythm, your brain, your brain starts to do um, a dopamine release with a melatonin drop. And so your brain thinks that you're going to be going into a dream state, even though you're awake. And so it starts to release these chemicals that your brain doesn't have in it at any other time during the day. And I think that you're not entering a dream state. I think that your brain is becoming more aware of its surrounding than it ever has been. 
So I, I don't think that, you know, if you see a ghost at three o'clock in the morning, it's because you have dream chemicals. I think the dream chemicals are allowing you to see a deeper reality than you would normally see. It's the only mm -hmm. time of the day that it actually happens. So I think cats and dogs are like that too. I think they're experiencing a much wider, stranger world than we give them credit for. I think children in a certain sense do too, because they haven't had the psychological blocks put up that, that we have put up as adults. Um, I mean, but yeah, but at the same time, it's also, it's always also sad to me because they are limited in a way that we don't understand. There's a, I, I might've written about this in theoretical weirdo, but you know, there's no rainbows for dogs. Dogs can, can't see color the way that we see mm -hmm. color. So no dog has ever seen a rainbow. And so they're limited in that way. Um, but at the same time, they have component smelling. So if you put chili down in front of a dog, it can choose to smell just the beans or just the pepper or just the chili. It can section out each <laughs> individual smell. So their, their universes are so much different from ours. And this is why, again, I've personally, I've made the choice to like, so I don't eat meat, I don't drink milk or whatever like that. And it, it, it's because I don't understand the full ramifications of this other living sentient creature on the planet with me. Uh, when I do lectures, I tell people all the time, you know, to make me, I ask people, how long did it take to make you? I'll pick someone out in the audience and they'll laugh and they'll say nine months. And, and that is one of the answers, right, is that it took nine months to make them. But the, a truer answer, a writer answer, is that, you know, the universe is billions of years old and everything that happened in the universe had to happen to make them. So they are literally billions of years old. All of the, It took billions of years to make them. And so when you smash a spider out of existence, how long did it take for the universe to make that spider? It took the same amount of time. It took billions of years and everything in the universe to make that spider, to make that ant, to make that dog, to make that yeah. cat. Those things are just as unique and special as we are. And for some reason, we have put ourselves up above them. And I, I wrote in uh, Theoretical Weirdo, there's a part that says like, if we were to die and go to heaven, I, I will feel bad about the animals that we are that we place underneath us having to deal with us in heaven still uh, because they're going to be like, Oh fuck, they got here too. Um, but it, it is, it is this, this very human thing to say, like, uh, you know, we understand them better than they understand our reality. And I, I do think that cats and dogs and animals, I think we're all magical, but I, we're magical in different ways. And yes, I can explain quadratic vision of a cat, but I also don't know the psychological motivations behind the cat or if it's seeing a goblin or a UFO or, or if it's talking to Ashtar command, like, I just don't know. <laughs> right. Sorry. Oh I get long winded. I get passionate talking about this weird shit. Sorry. No, it's amazing, John. Thank you so much. Yeah. We love it. And it's why we, we appreciated you coming, coming through here. Sorry. I kept you on for two hours. No problem. I think like everyone here, everyone stayed around because everyone's been enthralled with this conversation. And I love how engaged everyone has been tonight. It's been so great to see faces and hear voices. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, Thank um, you, Daniel. Some of our, uh, a port deport stuff was happening around the same time. So those sort of texts want to, to, to one another about like, hey, this disappeared. Nope, man, this disappeared. You know, I'm, and that's you know the what? stuff save, of life. Save that stuff because who knows if it went into a different dimension, it might be chemically like it's getting cheaper and cheaper to send stuff in for analysis. Like save that stuff because 
My just turned my, the bike. I sent it back to Ed. Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that bike might have, you might have ridden into another dimension on that bike. Maybe that was the bike's purpose. <laughs> oh, yeah. You could have been awesome. some weird Grant Morrison cartoon character. Got on, you had an interdimensional bike. Right, right. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a SpectreVision film, actually, is what that feels like, Daniel. All right, guys, we're going to call it a night. And thank John so much for joining us. And we'll do another one of these pretty soon. I don't know when, but sometime probably next month. And uh, again, we appreciate so much for everyone, you know, appreciate everyone coming through and, and spending time with us. John, you know, I think a lot of people are leaving this conversation wanting to learn more about where they can find your stuff if they don't already know. So what are all the places they can go to, to find more of your work? Everything on social media is just my name, John E. L. Tenney. Uh, my website is Weird Lectures. Type t my last name. You go to Google, type T-E-N-N-E-Y, and then type weirdo after it, and uh, it'll lead you down paths. <laughs> I'm going to end this the way I end my lectures. Please. Ready? Okay, so two things. This is how I end my lectures. Uh, um, one, for all of the time, energy, effort, money, uh, all of the resources that you put toward trying to experience and meet and talk to and communicate with some other realm and all of its weird denizens. Uh, I implore you to spend half as much time trying to communicate with the weird denizens that live in this realm with you right now. Hmm. And uh, two, uh, I said it already, but I really want to, like, again, I want to tell people, like, surprise yourself and surprise yourself with your kindness. Like it's in this era that we are in right now, it's not always easy to be kind yeah. and surprise yourself with your kindness and your creativity to be kind in the ways that you are kind. That's it. Yeah. Well said. And I think that's the perfect way to end this. <laughs> Thanks for Thank having you me. so much. You guys, uh, I love you all take care and have a great night and we'll talk to you very soon. All right. Good night. Good night.